0: Hello and welcome everybody to a special City Club forum. A, it's part of our Constitution Ale series. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive at the City Club. I'll be moderating today. It's great to have you all with us. Um, Our Constitutional Series, as you know, is uh, an opportunity for us to discuss the Constitution and uh, founding principles and foundational matters and and about how they come together to uh, inform how decisions are made today. And uh, we like to do it in public houses, as our founders would have had these conversations as well. Um, Our topic today, is the president above the law, executive power and its limits, or can he really do that? So um, our, uh, our panelists today, we've got, I'll start on the, on the far left. Um, well, actually, on my left, you're right, but actually far left as well. Uh, Joe White. <laughs> Joe White is, uh, is, Dr. Joe White, is a the Luxembourg Family Professor of Public Policy in uh, the Political Science Department at Case Western Reserve University. Next to him is Dr. David Stack, Assistant Lecturer in Political Science at Cleveland State University. And sitting next to me is Raymond Koo, Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University where he also directs the Cyberspace Law and Policy uh, section as well. So great to have all of you with us. As I said earlier, we're going to start with the panel conversation up here, move to Q&A in the second half of the program. So um, Joe White, I'd like to start, um, start with you about what's actually in Article 2, Section 2 of the US Constitution.
1: Uh, well, when I teach the presidency, I point out that there's not very much in Article 2, Section 2. There's some stuff about the pardon power and there's that the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And uh, there's also that the president, the executive power is vested in the president of the, in a President of the United States. but it doesn't exactly explain what the executive power is. There's no definition of the executive power. And so a whole lot of understanding the presidency involves trying to figure out what on earth we mean when we say the executive power. And uh, that can l- range from, uh, the understanding of these so-called unitary executive school which is basically that the executive power is the ability to give an order to anybody in the federal government and have them do what you tell them to to much weaker understandings and uh, by my definition the executive power is however much power the head of a hierarchy has over people lower down in the hierarchy in terms of determining their decisions but there are lots of other Um, elements of that and you know such as the fact that they have to worry about Congress and the courts and uh, and that's only part of presidential power because uh, the president uh, is generally the leader of a political party Uh, the president is generally uh, therefore since at least over the last hundred years a major figure in legislation, and he has a constitutional role in legislation through the veto. That is a legislative power that is given to him. So uh, I wanna emphasize that a lot of the stuff about presidential power um, is actually not about the executive power, but the most controversial stuff about the unitary executive is essentially a claim that the executive power uh, is much stronger than most of us have thought over the last 200 years. Joe White is a political scientist at Case Western
0: Reserve University. Raymond Koo, do you agree with Joe's assessment that, um, that there's really very little in the Constitution outlining what powers the President has?
2: Uh, well, yes. I, I mean, if you, if you look at Article 2, uh, the most important part of Article 2 says that all executive power is invested, uh, invested in the presidency, right? And so unlike uh, the Constitution's description of Congress's power, or even to some extent the description of Article 3 in courts, uh, the president's powers are very broad. Uh, subject to very few definitions and limitations. Though I, I would have to say that you're gonna get a very interesting perspective, I think, from the three of us, right? since uh, it's essentially, uh, I was thinking of a joke when we were coming here that what do you have when you have a public policy expert, a political scientist, and a lawyer uh, walk into a bar? Well, we'll find out in,
3: in, in shortly, <laughs> but
2: uh, but you know, so, so if Joe's talking about his view uh, about the role of the president in controlling the administrative agencies that the president is, is in charge of, my interest as a constitutional law professor is more in the kind of interrelationship between the president and Congress and the courts, right? the structure that the Constitution establishes. right? So to the extent that Article 2 doesn't provide a lot of details, the court has kind of fleshed out that relationship uh, about the balance between the three separate branches over time.
0: So we'll get to the, how the courts have fleshed out that relationship, but writ large, do you see it as a as having been a, a good decision or an unfortunate decision that the framers left so little, or left, put in so little detail?
2: Obviously, I'm hesitating. Uh, yeah. So the, I, I mean, the framers were brilliant in one particular respect, right? They were creating a system of government when I, when I tell my students that uh, when you look at any particular case or any particular decision it's very easy to kind of say well this they got it wrong right and how could the framers have thought of this system if we could reach this incorrect result at this time uh, but then when you step back uh, they very much knew they were creating a system of governance for people and that we will make mistakes and the system will make mistakes. And hopefully the system would be strong enough to deal with those mistakes and self-correct over time. So uh, I, I think that they did as best as they could, right? To quote Churchill, right? This is the worst system except for all the others.
0: So. <laughs> Ray, Ray Ku, as I said, professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. Dave Stack, um, how do you see it? Uh,
4: you pull that microphone a little closer yep. if you would, thanks. Uh, so like Joe and Ray, I would agree that the executive power is very vague. Uh, What I find really interesting in the Constitution is how they sort of deal with these separation of power issues. So what's most interesting to me is the different of basis of support that the President and Congress have. So the presidency is designed as a national institution where the President is elected by the entire nation and therefore represents this entire nation. Congress on the other hand is either is representing local interests. So they're representing state and local, state, their states if you're a senator or your congressional district if you're a member of Congress, if you're a uh, member of the House. And one thing that's always struck out um, or struck out to me is sort of the role the parties play in uniting these interests now. So when the Constitution was first int- uh, written, it was an agrarian nation with very sectoral interests. Now we have a system in which politics is nationalized. So I think this nationalization of politics may be really altering the balance of power between the President and Congress.
2: Although the very interesting thing that, David, you just raised is David's description of where our system is today would have been completely foreign to the actual framers of the exactly. Constitution, right? Uh, they, they really firmly did not believe that there would be a two-party system, and in fact, they, they from the beginning feared that, and yet very much right from the beginning of our, our nation, a two-party system developed. Right? They, they viewed the president not as a national figure, right, but as a filter. Uh, the national leader that would have been selected through the filtration of the state legislatures and the Senate, uh, not a directly a populist elected leader. Yeah, so it awesome. is amazing how far we've changed.
1: That's a, that. What you, yeah. And
0: you've just alluded to a whole other conversation right. about the Electoral College. Why, right. Yeah. right? Joe White, I can see you leaning in with something on the yeah, tip well, of your tongue. There,
1: yeah, there's just a few comments I want to make about these these somewhat standard views. Um, uh, first of all, the framers were were. Uh, trying to create a system, but not all of them thought it would last all that long. It was a system that didn't work anywhere else it was tried because a lot of the Latin American countries tried it. Um, and it was, it was a system that, um, by the way, didn't work here all that well. I mean, anybody who thinks we are in the political system created in 1787, as opposed to the uh, one that was created in 1865, uh, probably should think about that a bit. It broke down. It had a, the worst war of the 19th century. Um, and and, and the, so the tensions that were sort of left unsettled because they were scrambling to just get something done that will do for a while, um, ultimately uh, bro- you know, ultimately uh, broke the system apart. So, and similarly, uh, it's very common for presidents and advocates for presidents to say, the president represents the whole nation. But no, the president represents the bunch of people who happen to vote for him, who might actually be a minority, actually. Um, and and uh, it's a coalition that happened to back him, which isn't really fundamentally, which is based in localities which isn't e- really fundamentally different from the coalition that happens to have been constructed out of localities to govern Congress.
0: You know, Joe, I wanna come back to something you just said, though, that the, the 1865 remaking the, 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 the constitutional system that, w- that guides our republic. You had Lincoln, who was an extraordinarily powerful and forceful executive followed by Andrew Johnson, a failed executive, followed by Ulysses S. Grant, not really a great president, and I defy all, almost all of you to kind of name any of the presidents between Grant and, say, Teddy Roosevelt. Anybody?
1: Yeah, I can probably <laughs> do it. Cleveland, I, okay, I, there you I, go, There's I, one. I, can, <laughs> I can probably do it. Uh, the problem is a bunch of them are from Ohio, but (laughs) uh but uh yeah lutherford b hayes benjamin ben uh not benjamin um but james James uh, garfield another ohioan not not presidents uh, who
0: really sort of distinguish the office who we think about when we think about like the list of great presidents and powerful executives
1: right i'm not saying i'm not saying the refounding was a refounding with a powerful president at all after all the uh the one of the best-known books about that period was by this guy named Woodrow wilson who wrote about congressional government because presidents didn't matter very much um, <laughs> uh, but the, the fact is that you know one of the things that didn't settle was who's in charge the states or the national government who had fundamental question uh that was settled in 1865 that doesn't mean there haven't there weren't national political conditions that let, let states have their way on things like mistreating former slaves. But uh, the fundamental question of sovereignty was left unanswered in the Constitution and was answered in 1865
0: with guns. Let me bring us to uh, closer to the present day. Um, a, there's a widespread perception and on the, on the right that President Obama had sort of expanded the authority of the executive office and, there was, and, was in, and had perpetuated a system of, or sort of a, a practice of executive overreach with the, his executive orders of which there were quite a number. Um, and then on the left, there's this widespread perception as well that the current occupant of the Oval Office, President Donald Trump, has um, done more or less the same, only worse. Um, your thoughts, Reiku?
2: I, well uh, you know to the extent that President Obama was criticized it would be unfairly right I, I, the executive branch does what the executive branch wants to do so for the most part every president has attempted to expand the reach and their authority uh, as they've been president so the and really to to many extents the the worst thing that Obama did from many of our, of our perspectives was authorized drone strikes right uh, and that seemed to give the executive far more discretion than other presidents had exercised Uh, but you know we could list any number of problems that prior presidents had come up with and ironically while many people are critical of Trump today, he's been one of the few presidents to disavow some of the authority and discretion that comes with his office. Right, Even when we debate about things like immigration, right? uh, the idea that President Obama's immigration policy would, in fact, have said, well, we're going to interpret how we enforce our immigration rules as a matter of executive discretion, Trump said, "No, we can't do that. Right? We have to rely on the words of Congress and what uh, the courts have said." Right? So that's uh, actually quite rare for him to both challenge his predecessor's discretion and then also say that he doesn't have the discretion to change
0: that. But could, I'm not, I'm not I, sure what that. I was. don't think that is about me.
4: Right so, yeah. um, David Stack. So well, he may. His rhetoric may say that he wants to roll back executive authority but particularly on immigration, his actions seem to indicate that he's very comfortable exercising the executive authority. So he, uh, you know, in the very act of saying that he thought Obama was exercising, you know, taking too much power, he was issuing an executive order that rolled back, rolled back President Obama's initiatives, and si- he's since moved on to try to uh, circumvent the legislator on issues like asylum.
2: Right, no, that's right. And so like his initial discussion uh, was much more deferential, but you're right, with asylum, uh, with the kind of deferment uh, for uh, individuals from foreign countries that were in war-torn situations or other hardship conditions, Right, he has asserted that kind of discretion quite clearly. Yeah. Well,
1: I think, it's, I think it's important to recognize that in some cases, he has a, uh, both he and Obama asserted discretion and the court said, no, you don't have that discretion. Uh, whether we're talking about changing the rules about points of entry um, and, and asking for asylum, or whether we're talking about you know, some of the court questioning of DACA. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, one thing to remember is laws are passed and then there are interpretation questions, and there's room, for, there's room for variation in interpretation, sometimes because the law is just unclear, sometimes because the law cannot be enforced fully by the letter of the law. DACA, in part, was about the situation in which um, you do not have the resources to do everything. And so, you know, ostensibly, this was an order that was setting priorities about what you could do with your limited resources. Um, so, I think DACA was certainly a stretch. I think the stuff on, an asyl- on asylum, uh, you know, having to be at points of entry is, is, is certainly a stretch. Uh, I have, I have, I have trouble seeing, uh, but I, I want to emphasize that there's a lot of stuff that is just basically uh, partisan control of the executive branch means different parties do different things, and so you know, you know, with the Obama administ- with the, with the Bush and then Trump administrations, you weren't having regulations of carbon, carbon for global warming, and with the Obama administration, you are. And then it's actually what actually happens is the courts have more or less sided with the idea that there should be regulation. Uh, In the the, uh, Obama administration, the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, ran advertisements to try to get people to sign up for Affordable Care Act coverage um, and didn't run advertisements to try to get people to leave traditional Medicare and sign up for Medicare Advantage plans. Those of you who have listened to your radio or, or watched TV with Joe Namath and all that, looking really old, um, you know, have probably have probably noticed that these days the Trump administration is not telling people that they ought to sign up for affordable care act coverage, and is telling people they should get out of traditional Medicare and get into traditional Advantage and get all the benefits they deserve. You know, there's there's going to be a substantial amount of difference in how the in in how programs are administered, based on Who's in charge? And I don't see, if it, what I see as particularly unusual was simply abandoning the Geneva Convention. In other words, I think the stuff that uh, Bush 43 did uh, was far more questionable than really basically what the, pre- what the last two presidents have done. That doesn't mean that, that Trump isn't gonna try to do some terrible things later. And isn't doing terrible things to our political system in informal ways, but in terms of the exercise of executive power, I don't see—I I, don't—I don't see a huge difference between Trump and Obama, uh, and I don't see either of them as really tremendously uh, over the edge.
0: Ray Ku, from a constitutional perspective, why was the the way in which Bush 43 stepped away from the Geneva Convention so problematic? Well, uh, I mean, not only had we we agreed to the terms of the Geneva
2: Convention, Congress had passed laws, uh, you know, enforcing the Geneva Convention. So,
0: so both specifically with regard to torture,
2: enhanced interrogation, right? Torture, uh, or uh, beyond that, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and the use of the NSA to gather information, uh, both in the United States involving foreign targets, but also just in the United States in general. Right? Those were examples. In which there were clear legal rules, both international and national, and targeting uh, that the U.S. citizens. Yes, too. and targeting U.S. citizens that the, the president chose uh, to ignore under the president's executive authority. And, and that is one of those examples where the Supreme Court has held very clearly the president's power is at its weakest. Right? when the president is not only exceeding any authority granted by Congress, but when the president is acting contrary to laws passed by Congress. Right? And so yes, people are concerned about what, like for example, President Trump is doing today, uh, but I was hard pressed when I was even talking to colleagues, like what law has he clearly violated so far? There are things we're concerned about, there are uh, allegations and investigations into legal problems and perhaps law violations, but as Joe was describing, a lot of what he's talking about are kind of the discretion and policy choices we normally delegate uh, to the President of the United States.
0: Theoretically, if he had violated a law, could he pardon himself? (laughs)
2: There's no precedent, right? I mean, to the extent that you want to look at it in terms of what what the, the soul and purpose of the law is, he shouldn't be able to, right? The Supreme Court has held consistently, our framers have argued consistently, and most Americans would believe that, the president's not above the law. Right. And the idea that the president could pardon himself for violations of the law would seem to be fundamentally inconsistent.
0: It would that. seem weird from, a, from a just sort of a logical perspective. If he was found guilty of something, he would right. probably no longer be president, so he could no longer have the power to pardon himself. And you can't really do a preemptory pardon.
1: Yes, right. You, you can, can, but yes. Yes, yes. <gasps> yes you can. Uh, Gerald Ford did it for Richard Nixon. Right. Uh, and so uh, and so. Uh, oh you know, yeah, you're right theres mm-hmm. There is there is <laughs> there there is the possibility that you know, perhaps that he that he would try it, uh, and and this gets to the basic rule, which is all of this stuff depends on what the other people then do. So somebody decides to prosecute a president who's already pardoned himself. You know, do the whoever whichever police are involved pick him up? Is he put in jail? Um, you know, do these prosecutors show up? Uh, you know, you know what happens. You know, one of the reasons I emphasize the ability of presidents to to influence the behavior of the agents of government is that that's what government does. Everything government does is the behavior of some set of officials and agents, and the the con- the conflict the control of the bureaucracy is fought over between the president and the president's people, the Congress, the courts, and all sorts of interest groups which have their own way of trying to to get at it. And the president is the most influential because the norm of executive power means that actually people in the bureaucracies think they're sort of supposed to do what the people who are above them in the hierarchy say most of the time. And the president has the most influence on who is above them in the hierarchy most of the time but um, we don't know what would happen if somebody decided to prosecute a President Trump who had pardoned himself. Uh, the more interesting thing to me is that he hasn't pardoned all sorts of other people in advance. I mean, after all, uh, the first President Bush pardoned Caspar Weinberger and and so on, and and the, uh, and, you know, President Ford, for whatever reason, I don't think to protect himself, but because of his own views of protecting the country, pardoned President Nixon. Uh, and you'd think that life would be a lot easier for P- President Trump if he had gone ahead and pardoned Michael Cohen and pardoned, uh, and I think part of the problem is that some of those crimes would have been state crimes in the case of Michael Cohen, so he couldn't pardon them, for, pardon, pardon them anyway. But a lot of this stuff is federal crimes and it's, it's actually fairly striking that he hasn't.
0: David Stack, what do you think is constraining President Trump from exercising that power? And that power of the pardon is, is really, like, one of the only
4: things that, that's clearly laid out in the Constitution. So I think in that regard, Congress, Congress and his own party may be restraining him. So um, if he was to pardon somebody that shouldn't be pardoned and abuse his authority, then the ultimate recourse is impeachment. I don't necessarily see Republicans doing that, but they can still work to make his life difficult. If they wanted to, re- if they wanted to eliminate um, control his ability to control prosecutions, they could pass a law and then override vetoes. So this happened early on in the administration when they passed the Russian sanctions bill. Uh, I believe it passed through, through the Senate with uh, one dissension. So they, Congress has the ability to push back. The question is, would Congress exercise the ability? Uh, I think the Republican leadership during this whole, this, um, whole presidency has been very mum on the sub- subject. They haven't pushed legislation to protect the Mueller investigation, but if they were to push, um, push that legislation and then it would fail, it would give President Trump the leeway to fire Mueller. By maintaining this ambiguity, they're uh, placing some constraints on President Trump. Joe White, is that how you see the, the constraints as well?
1: Far be it from me to understand Congressional Republicans. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a whole lot easier than understanding Donald Trump. Um, I, I do think that uh, they've made their deal, that they're getting a lot of what they want from this president, but I don't think either they or that president know how far he can go before the public pressure is too negative. I mean, the Senate Republicans got through this election, but the House Republicans didn't. And um, but but I you know I I suspect that at some level Trump hasn't pardoned people because he doesn't think he's guilty anyway. So what the heck? Uh, I, I I'm I'm not going to speculate further on 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 what he's thinking. So it would be it would be sort of admitting guilt to go ahead and pardon Cohen. and and pardon uh, whoever else is in Mueller's sight. And this is not a guy who admits guilt very easily.
0: But some of these guys have already pled guilty, they pleaded guilty to a variety of crimes, so, um,
1: but if they'd known they would be pardoned, they wouldn't have.
0: Yeah, right. So <laughs> in the last 25 months, we have heard pundits um, speak often about uh, using the two, the two words constitutional crisis, and probably more often than we've heard in our lifetimes in that, in that brief amount of time. Four days from now is the deadline for uh, the decision about uh, the, the wall, and the president has said that if he doesn't get what he wants, he'll just go ahead and declare a national emergency and build the wall by, through that declaration. Now, I'm pretty sure the Constitution, I just read over Section 2 of, um, of, and of Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. I'm pretty sure the, word, the phrase national emergency doesn't actually appear in there. Um, am I right, Reku? You're right. Okay, good. Um, do we get, like, what defines a constitutional crisis? And, and at what point, do we? I mean, because people are like, "Oh, it's a constitutional crisis. Oh, it's a constitutional crisis." But are we actually a const? Is is could we get to a constitutional crisis, and what would that mean? Well.
2: We easily can, right? I mean, to go back to Joe's historical frame, right? I mean, but we've had many of them, right? So, um, you know, could the president put down a rebellion uh, under George Washington's presidency? Could Thomas Jefferson uh, purchase the Louisiana territories? right? Could, could Abraham Lincoln engage in a blockade of the Southern states? Even though technically that might not have satisfied the laws of war, and Um,
1: suspend habeas corpus, and suspend
2: habeas corpus, (laughs) right? Uh, So, so there, there, there. You know, certainly we like to think of the crises of the day as perhaps more important, and certainly it's more pressing to us. Um, But you know, to one of the most important cases in constitutional law, involving presidential power, uh, involved, you know, um, the essentially the president seizing steel mills, right, during the Korean War uh, under the idea that they needed to maintain steel production in order to keep the war effort going. And that was where the first Supreme Court really truly presented for the first time the question of can a president declare a state of emergency uh, based on war issues, even though Congress had not only not authorized him to do it, but had actually considered and denied the president the authority to do such a thing. Right. So uh, at least President Trump has a National Emergencies Act that he can rely on. Uh, whether or not anyone actually believes what he would declare as a crisis of the border is actually a national emergency is a different question.
1: I just I just want to emphasize that at some level there is a constitutional crisis. We can't pass appropriations bills. Uh, the government is totally screwed up. Uh, you, you can't run agencies, federal employees don't get paid, it's gonna ha- it looks like it might well happen again. This is a constitution that isn't working. Now, is it really horrible on top of that if the president tries to build a wall without having money appropriated for it? Yeah, that'd be really bad, but I don't even know if people, if 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 he'll be able to do it if he declares he's going to do it. I don't know what the courts are go, are going to say because it it's sort of like at some at some point on the one hand there's a statute, but on the other hand the courts have to decide. Oh come on, is this really the kind of emergency that the that the statute allows him to do this for? Uh, so so I don't even know what's what's going to happen. It was to me it would be a violation of the understanding of the Constitution. Whereas, of my understanding of the Constitution, whereas failing to agree on appropriations is actually perfectly predictable under the Constitution, terrible, but is, you know, it's, it's just the Constitution not working, it's not the Constitution being violated. Which of those constitutes a bigger crisis is for you to decide. Well,
2: this is where I'd also say again to it's a process right so it's not that the Constitution's not working it's a constitution for people right and to the extent that Congress isn't exercising its authority in a way that might check the president or for example make sure that we pass an appropriations bill that is veto proof uh, to the extent that the president can't hold the country hostage over some definition of a wall uh, which he still hasn't even doesn't have the legal authority to fully build even if he has the money right they have to appropriate the land uh, pay the various landowners that they'll have to take their property from Uh, so you know at some point our elected officials uh, need to stand up and do something Uh, otherwise we wait another year and a half or so and vote them out of office right so again when I talk about a system that was created that's unfortunately part of what we have to deal with is sometimes the system takes some time to resolve itself and ultimately we're dependent on that right it has to work if it only works
0: if we work in it. David Stack, as this unfolds over the course of this week, what, as a political scientist, what are you watching for in terms of where the constitutional authority versus the political power lies?
4: So, I think with, in particular with immigration issues, President Trump has a lot of popularity within his own party. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Republican senators seem to be okay with sort of any deal that's struck. So if there's no wall, I don't think a lot of Republican senators or Republican members of the House. I don't see them torpedoing the deal. Uh, what they don't want is a situation where they vote for a compromise and then President Trump um, pillories them for that, and then they're in. Then they would be in primary trouble, uh, trouble for primaries. So they don't want to get primaried. Um, so I think essentially what the wall comes down to is, and it, reaching the deal, is what President Trump feels like on Friday morning or Friday afternoon. So if there's some positive news reports on Fox News, then maybe we'll be seeing a budget, a budget deal. So we're
0: gonna to get to questions from all of you in just a second. Um, one of the things that is really, I, I think actually kind of exceptional about uh, about America, about this republic, and I'm not a, a big fan of the whole American exceptionalism thing, but in a lot of places that have uh, what they would refer to as democracy, often you have an authoritarian president who suspends Congress or suspends Parliament or something like that. And in my non-lawyerly reading of section two, um, there's this there's this phrase about allowing, in the case of disagreement, between the chambers, of, between the two chambers of the House, we, that the, the executive may adjourn Congress until they sort out their differences. Raymond Koo, has that ever happened? You know, that's
2: a good question. I don't know to my knowledge if that has happened, but Joe might, Joe might know more in his historical perspective of the presidency.
1: <laughs> Nobody talks about that power um, that I'm aware of. I'm telling you, um, among, uh, among other things, you know, great, you adjourn them, but they still haven't appropriated the money, so there's no government, you know, because uh, no money can be expended from the United States Treasury except in accord with appropriations made by law. So uh, certainly for this kind of problem, you know, adjournment doesn't solve the problem. If, right. they can't, if they can't agree on appropriations bills, I mean,
0: I think it's fascinating. Um, one of those great things—the republic endures, no matter, despite all of these, uh, all so of these. Far. So far, thank you, Joe, <laughs> for your optimism. <laughs> and, and despite a civil <laughs> With, war. Yeah, well. um, let's bring in questions from from any of you. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and my colleague Julia Wong will will find her way to you, um, and uh, and we'll get to as many questions as you might have. Surely there are some. We've got one up front here. Uh, or one back here i can't, i didn't see hello vince go ahead you're behind the pole sorry first i want to say that if
3: you google case public affairs discussion group you'll find all about uh what joe does uh virtually every friday a case and it's just wonderful but it competes uh, with the friday if, form yes I was gonna so we're say just you, not going to talk about if that you
1: can't make the friday form yeah,
3: yeah. if you can't make the friday form uh, my question is we've we've talked about basically the dearth of power in uh, article 2 as compared to, you know, all of these powers that are enumerated in Article One for Congress, and uh, Professor Ku, you've alluded to this a few times. Basically, what you've said is, I, I think that the executive has been taking on power at the expense of Congress, and I think uh, probably the best example of that is the war power. And so my question is, uh, is number one, is that the case? And, and let's focus on the war power. Uh, has the executive taken on all this war power because Congress has decided not to do anything and now that that's happened, what can Congress do to take that power back?
2: Uh, good question. I, I mean, the, the biggest problem is actually the framers kicked a lot of cans down the road, right? The, the biggest, of course, being the Civil War and the question of slavery. But even executive authority, when they were drafting the war powers uh, provisions, uh, they weren't sure exactly how far to go, right? Uh, they, they, they ended up with Congress has the power to declare war because the concern was, well, what happens when the British invade? Right under those circumstances, does the president have to call, uh, you know, Congress into session? Right, they all have to get in their horse and buggies and drive to, you know, get get to Washington before the president could act. Uh, so there was that recognition even then that uh, the language has to be broad enough to support one uh, a, a role where Congress is the dominant authority but also where Congress to some extent is also the most dangerous authority in their view, hence all the delineation of congressional power. Uh, but it really wasn't until the new deal uh, and the kind of growth of the administrative state that the president's authority started to become as serious as it is right the idea that congress could delegate um rulemaking about competition right or the environment uh to the executive branch and not have to pass legislation for each particular act uh that for for many generations troubled the Supreme Court. They even had uh, essentially a a constitutional principle called the non-delegation doctrine that initially opposed that effort. But we have since essentially allowed that and that has led to the president's enormous growth of authority.
0: David Stack, the ability of a president to to write regulations, issue regulations, and advice to to departments, and that's a huge power when you think about it.
4: Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I think it's tough for Congress to claw this back. And I think a lot of times we present it as Congress, as the president taking power from Congress. I, I think what happens far more frequently, frequently is the president, or con, I mean, Congress gives the power to the president. So they delegate this re, this responsibility to the president because they may not have, Or they abdicate it? Or, yeah, abdicate it to the president because they may not have the technological capacity. If it r- involves responding to a crisis quickly, they don't necessarily have the time to pass legislation to respond to a crisis quickly. But you also see them delegate responsibility when it comes to politically tough, um, tough decisions. For example, if it comes to closing military bases, uh, at the end of the Cold War we needed to reduce the size of the military to reflect the international threat environment. However, there isn't a member of Congress out there that would go and say, I want to support a bill that loses jobs for my district. So they delegated sort of their legislative, abil- legislative law writing ability to a committee and later on the president to figure out which basis to close and then voted up or down on this bill. So when the president gives Congress political cover, the president, uh, Congress is all about that. Um, so I don't see Congress necessarily wanting to take back their responsibility because responsibility means they might, be, they might lose votes over it
1: well, if, if I may, uh, there's, there's different situations, okay? There are situations where Congress has given the president power, whether we're talking, I mean, the BRCA, the Base, base, base uh, Re- Reduction Act, is actually to a committee, not exactly to the president, all right, um, but uh, creating the president's budget, creating the ability of the president to propose a budget. Um, and therefore review all the estimates from the individual agencies, rather than the agencies submitting them directly to Congress, which was a situation before 1921. Uh, Fast-track trade negotiation authority. I mean, there's this, you know, reorganization authority. There's a series of situations in which Congress has created presidential institutions, in most cases, in a way that gives the president a substantial first mover advantage, but, the President proposes, and Congress still disposes, okay? Um, and it's it's helpful to Congress to have the President make the first move because if they like the move, but some other people don't, they can accept the President's move and blame him. And if they don't like the move, uh, and they change the move, then whoever they heard is mad at them, but whoever they've saved from the President likes them. So having the President move first is in the political is politically helpful, on average to the members of Congress. But a lot of the delegation actually is not to the president, it's to the secretary. Most laws say something like the secretary shall, the secretary shall, the secretary shall, the secretary of HHS, the secretary of labor, the secretary of the treasury or whatever. There's a tremendous amount of delegation which is to the executive branch but not directly to the president. And the big question is when you have delegated to the secretary, does that mean the secretary has to do exactly what the president says? And in some answers, situations, the answer is clearly no because the president doesn't give a damn and the president doesn't know anything about it. Um, and that's true of a lot of delegation, but you know, the reason the appointment power is so is much more important than things like executive orders is that, uh, is that the president still has the greatest role in in appointing the secretary or the administrator or the director or the bureau chief or whatever. Um, so, So the appointment power is still basically the heart of executive power.
2: And if I could follow up on Joe's comment, this is actually one of those issues that's getting some press but not as much as you know, a constitutional scholar or the professors up here on this panel would probably appreciate, which is the, the number of interim executive appointments that this current administration has. Right? So to the extent that we're, we care about Congress's delegation of authority to the president and the con- Congress's role to control some of that authority, s- the Senate's advice and consent is fundamental in that process. Right. And right now there are many heads of departments that are political appointees uh, that are in those roles without having gone through uh, the Senate's advice and consent process. And that does go to Joe's point of that certainly makes them a lot more amenable uh, to listening to what the President wants them to do Uh, and does so in a process that kind of skirts one of the branches of government.
0: But meanwhile, underneath those layers of interim appointments, which are the same as recess appointments in many ways, is the administrative deep state of people who have been there and they'll be the, they they were there before, before President Trump got there, they'll be there when President Trump leaves and whoever comes next.
2: Well, I'll, as a, I'll admit that my father worked for the USGS, uh, uh-huh. so as the son of a career civil servant, I wouldn't say deep state, but public servant uh, w- w- would be a, an alternative description. And, and yes, <laughs> I, I mean, the, no, the number of people I know who've worked at the Department of Justice, the Environmental Protection Agency, and other in various branches of government, they take their job seriously as public servants. So, so yes, is there a little bit of a pushback if the president says, that uh, you should r- separate children from their parents, and that's consistent with immigration and resettlement policy. The career people will say, in fact, no, you know, Madam Secretary, uh, no, Mr. President, that is not, in fact, consistent with the rules we promulgated, promulgated, the regulations that are in force mm-hmm. and so on. And, and in some respects, that is a very important check in our democracy. So if you don't like it, it's the deep state. If you do, it's civil yeah. service. Yeah, I was
0: using air quotes. You yeah, couldn't yeah, see yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Our next question, please.
1: Uh, my question is for Dr. White. You mentioned how um, the president has wide parameters of power, and that the people that work under him are supposed to do as they're told. And I guess that makes me very, very nervous in that people can do things possibly later on we'll
4: find are illegal or a bad idea and it reminds me of after the Second World War when people said, I was just doing what I was told, I was following orders, and when
1: we find out something like separating families, excuse me, um, can those people be held responsible if something is found that he's done or ordered illegal? Can we, or are they just gonna say, I was following orders and just get off? Well, in terms of finding people responsible, that's actually more of a Professor Ku question. My guess is no. Um, But uh, I I really think it's important to understand that there's a conflict of various principles that the people in the agencies can be following. And we don't generally understand how strong the principle of the legitimacy of the order from above is. Okay? Um, And so people who talk about the deep state and about the resistance of the bureaucracy to the president um, I think sometimes seriously overstate that. You know, the Department of Education goes from having Democrats run it to Republicans run it, and it changes its behavior. The, 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 uh, the uh, civil servants change what they are advocating for. Um, having said that, they, have, they face other direct pressures. They are enforcing laws, and the laws have texts, and and there are standard interpretations or to change behavior you have to change a regulation that you're following and that requires going through all the notice and comment procedures of the administrative procedure act or um there's you know plenty of situations where you change something and you get sued or Somebody in Congress says, oh, by the way, we are denying you the money to do that in this Appropriations Act, and the president signs the Appropriations Act because there's eight million other things in the the Appropriations Act, and he has to sign something eventually. So within the president's sort of, the norm of hierarchical authority is much more powerful than critics of the deep state say. Uh, At the same time, Uh, there are many bases for resistance, ranging from the uh, personal values of people who've been trained in a certain way to the pressures from Congress, the pressures from the courts, and so on. Now, in the case of immigration, if we're talking about ICE, the people in ICE basically agree with the president. Their union endorsed Trump in the 2016 campaign, right? They're believers. But I don't know, if you're talking about the antitrust division of the Department of Justice or you're talking about, you know, some other parts of, of the government, including potentially the United States Army, not so clear.
0: Let's go to our next question.
4: Um, thank you uh, for your comments. Um, getting back a little bit to the idea of the, uh, the discussion around the pardon. i um, I'm not an attorney, but I like to practice it as a hobby occasionally. <laughs> and uh, with some of the DC connections that I've spoken with, one of the reasons that has been said that he has not chosen to pardon anyone at this time is because once he does, they will have to fully disclose anything they know to Mueller because they will have no reason not to at that point. So the timing around possible pardons, I think, can be complicated, can it, under that scenario?
0: Professor Koo?
2: Well, it, it really depends. You know, if, if you look at some of the people that have been involved in these controversies, essentially begging for pardons uh, on television, uh, there's no reason that the president can't pardon them again. Right? And, and that is the danger of this situation, right? A lot of our legal practices are just that their practices they, they depend on a series of norms in our behaviors and our understanding that there is such a thing as law and uh, I think what scares everyone it's there's no evidence to demonstrate that this is go- definitely going to happen but it's the potential that you know, this President could act in ways that totally throw out all of those norms. right? And so if you could pr- if you could pardon Michael Cohen, yes, it's possible that Mueller will call him uh, to give testimony. And if he resists and he's charged with perjury, uh, they could pardon him again. right So uh, the the bigger question is whether or not he would actually, in any other context, have to give a declaration uh, that that would not be subject to that. But th- the way our system works, if he's claimed to have lied, we'd have to have somehow prosecute and prove that. So uh, the pardon power is always there in the background. Okay.
4: And I, I Go ahead, if David. If we're at the part where he's, if we're at the part where he's pardoning um, Cohen, he's probably going to direct the Department of Justice to ignore any future violations. Interesting. All right, another question. Hi. Can, you, can the panel speak to the emoluments clause? It sounds like someone might have violated it, but it also sounds like it's not that big of a deal. Um, so can you speak to, if, is that a presidential power that has been violated, and if so, what happens next?
2: Well, the biggest problem with the emoluments clause is there is not a lot of precedent on it. right? So, so we know historically, even George Washington received some gifts from France through former employee, you know, uh, staff members of his. Uh, but yes, as a constitutional provision, if you think about the purpose behind it, right, which is uh, to prevent the president from potentially being corrupted or influenced by gifts from foreign countries or foreign nationals, there's clearly a concern, right? When uh, one could establish a link between foreign countries and individuals and uh, the financial interests of the president of the United States. Uh, but like a lot of ethic, ethics problems in the United States, we, we go often by two rules, right? When is there actually a problem of ethics? And when are there is there an appearance of ethical problems, and I think what scares most of us now is that the administration has really taken the position that the appearance doesn't matter, right? You have to prove the hard facts of the ethical violation, right? So hence, he didn't in fact divest his owning uh, his businesses. He did not put them in a blind trust. Uh, he has asserted correctly that the Ethics Act along those lines immunize or exempt the president and the vice president. Uh, But other presidents have in fact acted in good faith in saying that, well, we're concerned about the appearance and we want to avoid that, right? But President Trump has not followed that. So that's one reason why the lawsuit that's challenging him on the uh, ameliements clause has continued to go through the legal system.
1: One does have to wonder how totally unaware Lyndon Baines Johnson was of the television uh, market in Austin, Texas. Yeah, you know. You
0: know. Ex- unpack what you're talking about, Joe.
1: Well, I mean, he had, I don't. I don't think he divested himself of his t- television stations. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is this this is a legitimate sounding issue. Um, but I can also see why a bunch of people would, yeah, why at least conservatives and supporters of Trump would say this is a technicality. It's not. It's a technicality. They would, of course, use against any Democrat. Uh, but, you know, this, and Trump's position would be, I'm an extremely rich guy, so yeah, maybe I get a little money from this hotel in Washington, but how does that compare to, you know, my overall, my golf courses and all that other stuff? So I, 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 I I'm not expecting that to lead to impeachment, <laughs> okay. Next question. Yeah, uh, getting
2: back to the wall, if we don't come to a deal and he invokes, um, uh, tries to invoke an emergency and say, hey, we're going to build the wall, what will happen? Will we see it go to court? What, do you, what will be the procedure his opponents will
0: follow? That's a Raymond Ku question.
2: Oh. OK, well, uh, as, assuming that Congress doesn't come up with a veto-proof deal, uh, yeah, I, it'll be challenged right away. I, I have no question that someone will bring a challenge that his declaration of an immigration crisis on the southern border uh, that requires him to appropriate funds uh, from various sources where those funds weren't in fact designated or appropriated for, uh, would violate the Constitution? Would
1: the the challenge, if if, if I may, the wonderful irony is that we just had a case in the other direction. Because the Affordable Care Act said that insurance companies have to provide extra disca- extra benefits to people whose incomes were below a certain level, and um, and and therefore they had to provide uh, to reduce the cost sharing in the silver plans from the from the Affordable Care Act so there would be much better benefits. Um, and uh, but but it didn't but it didn't automatically require that the money be provided. So the money had to be into, had to be appropriated each year. The Republicans in the House refused to appropriate the money. Obama spent it anyway. The Republicans of the House sued the Obama administration for spending money that wasn't appropriated. A district court judge in Washington said, you know, they you know, refused to throw out the case, so said the House Republicans had standing. Um, and, uh, and then of course Trump won and after about nine months of back and forth as to what they would actually do. Uh, basically, the, the Trump administration conceded the case, said, well, we don't want to spend this money anyway, so we're not going to defend the position anymore. It's rather hard to figure out, I mean, they may have ideas, why the same logic, I mean, ex- except for the claim about the emergency, but there was, by the way, a very strong claim about an entitlement in law for the, for the, uh, uh, for the uh, cost-sharing subsidies, uh, you know, it's really hard to see. At, the, at a minimum, the question of standing seems to have been settled. Um, and uh, so I assume the House Democrats will sue.
0: Right. So, that, so, so just to, to be clear, I mean, sometimes these challenges require standing, right? So you can't, the, the emoluments, the reason there hasn't been a solid challenge on emoluments is because nobody's got real standing that, that has held up in court. Who would have standing in the case of the president, say if we game this out and the president, you know, says I'm gonna build a wall, declare the national emergency, who has standing to oppose him?
1: According according to the judge on the, on the cost sharing subsidies case, the House of Representatives has standing.
2: Right, yeah, so what Joe's describing and what Dan has talked about too is a constitutional requirement that anyone that brings a constitutional challenge has to have standing. That means they have to have been injured, they have to have suffered injury in fact, Uh, the the remedy that they're seeking has to essentially deal with the problems that they're claiming. And uh, the court has been reluctant to grant really broad, cases of standing. So the idea that just Congress could sue because uh, they're unhappy with something that the president has done is actually a very foreign proposition to what the Supreme Court has done in general. But as Joe points out, uh, under the Obama administration, they, they were more than willing to say, yes, members of the House could sue the president. They have actually been injured enough to seek redress in courts rather than try to solve this as a political matter uh, through that system. So yeah, there is no doubt that members of the Congress will in fact bring that lawsuit uh, so, immediately.
0: So there are also others though, who might bring a lawsuit. I mean, you could you could see the ACLU, you could mm-hmm. see the city of El Paso for that matter. I city, mean- city
1: are, of El Paso really leaps to mind. And uh, I think there were some made up plaintiffs in addition to the house for the uh, for 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 the uh, for the cost-sharing subsidies case, but it's real we are easy a to see of
0: the rule of law. But it's there real, is but no made-up plaintiffs.
1: Uh, made-up plaintiffs. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's real it's real easy to see the city of El Paso, among others, as, as just an obvious plaintiff in this one. Okay, we're going to do one more question. If it was revealed from the Mueller investigation or whatever. That uh, Trump had borrowed $50 million from a Russian oligarch and still owed that money to a Russian oligarch, what would be the constitutional uh, repercussions of that, if any?
0: Well,
1: That's yours, Raymond yeah,
2: it, it, it's It would be a huge test for Congress, right? And more importantly, I think at this point, it would be a test for the Senate. Uh, I think that given the last election and the Democrats taking control of the House, something that clear from the Mueller investigation would easily be an impeachable offense. And, and in fact, if, uh, before coming here, I was just kind of curious and I, I, I did a Google search for uh, things that Trump has done wrong or laws that Trump has broken. And you can find any number of websites with here are the top 10 impeachable offenses or here are the top 15 and any number of them vary. Uh, but the idea idea that a career prosecutor like Mueller would come up with something like that would be easily an offense that pretty much any member of Congress would vote for. And so the real question is what the Senate would do. Right? We have impeached multiple presidents. We have never removed a president from office and so yes to the extent that the house could file you know impeachment and pass it it doesn't mean that the senate would do anything with it in fact right and so the senate has uh by one vote right uh, avoided actually um impeaching johnson uh but um, you know otherwise uh, you know i'm not quite sure what will happen in the end
0: david stack what do you what is your political prognosticator your inner political prognosticator tell you about should that happen, what would the Senate do? What kinds of pressure would they be under?
4: Uh, I think they would be under a lot of pressure. But a number of, a number of Republican senators aren't really feeling um, electoral pressure right now. So they just got reelected. This was a huge Republican class that just entered Congress. So they would feel free, free to vote however they wanted. Um, there might be some senators that feel, felt compelled to vote to impeach him or remove him from office. But I think it would take a lot. The uh, evidence would have to be overwhelming, and I I think it would come down to public opinion. So if Republicans started to turn against him in any meaningful way, then yes, I think some some Republican senators would turn against him. But right now, his approval rating amongst Republicans is around 80 to 90%. It would have to drop to around 60%. Um, It also depends on how close to the election it is. So if they do it right around now, when there would be time for a primary challenger to arise, the calculus is very different than if, the, um, if these allegations came to light right before the election. So if, it's, if there's time for somebody to challenge him, then you might have an opportunistic Republican try to make a run for the presidency and rally support against him. If it's right around the election, then I would be very surprised to see action on it. Joe White.
1: Well, let's, let's say it's towards the end of this year. Um, It's very hard for me to believe that there will be fewer than 34 Republican senators who feel safe supporting Trump. That said, there may be fewer than 34 who think that Trump is a better candidate in the 2020 election than Mike Pence is. So I don't think you you can calculate this for the Republicans without including some sort of variable on whether they think Pence can hold the presidency more successfully than Trump can, particularly if Ruth Bader Ginsburg is still alive. And so, uh, you know, if 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 they've actually gone ahead and replaced Ginsburg with Kavanaugh II or whatever, um, then uh, then uh, maybe they think, oh, what the heck, we've accomplished everything we wanted to accomplish anyway. Uh, but but my my sense is that uh, that uh, the calculations will be about. Pence as opposed to Trump as a presidential candidate. Something yeah, else to add, Ray? I, I right? was
0: going
2: to say that just a little part of me just died listening to all of our responses <laughs> because none of us actually talked about the substance of the matter, right? And, and that, is, that is a very sad statement about both our process and kind of where we are today. Right? that if a president, regardless of who that president is, might be financially beholden to a foreign power uh, and therefore not have the interests of our country at stake, that the question of the optics of the politics would govern the decision rather than the good of the country. Well, but
0: it's know. also completely unchartered territory. Correct. I mean, with, it's not anything, you know, and it's a, you know, I just hope it's hypothetical and remains so. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Raymond Kuh, David Stack, Joseph White of uh, Case Western Reserve, Cleveland State and Case Western Reserve, again, pardon me, the back and forth there. Um, and this is Constitution Ale, which is sponsored by the Great Lakes Brewing Company, and um, and it doesn't happen without all of you. Please give yourselves and our panelists and Great Lakes a round of applause. <laughs> the next program in the Constitution Ale series is March 11th, and we'll be discussing the Fifth Amendment. But for now, our forum is adjourned. Thanks for being here.